0: Well, let's pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you uh, that you have not left us in our ignorance, but you have spoken to us uh, through your word. We pray that you would be at work among us by your spirit, opening hearts and minds uh, that we would hear, uh, that we would understand, and that we would um, respond faithfully to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, one of the regular feelings uh, throughout this year of COVID has been the craving for something new. I wonder if you've uh, noticed it around the place. Um, While, yes, it may have been mixed with a desire to return back, you know, to the old normal, there's also been the excitement of new possibilities. Uh, In my family, the early days of lockdown gave us a glimpse of the new possibilities of a slower pace of life, you know, bushwalking time spent with family, with one another, uh, without all the regular weekly pressures that fill our timetable otherwise. Uh, For some people, it's been the excitement of new ways of doing things in business. The opportunities opened up online that no one had conceived of previously. And then there's been the excitement of each new public health order. As there was this week with the news that we can now sing without masks in church. And hasn't that been good? good? Um, On a bigger scale, though, there is a sense, I think, that perhaps the world is on the cusp of a new era. I wonder if you've sort of picked that up in the zeitgeist. In in tackling the big issues, the big geopolitical issues, big issues on things like uh, climate change. Is COVID the catalyst that the world needed? Well, I guess uh, only time will tell. Well, today in the final passage of our Term 1 Act series, we are reminded that in the coming of Jesus, God himself has begun to usher in his new era for our world. For centuries before Jesus, the anticipation among God's people had been rising and rising. Uh, they had... In their scriptures, the promises of the prophets that God would one day bring in this new golden era for Israel, um, that, that he would overthrow their enemies and exalt Israel among the nations once more. And by the time of Jesus, many were excited at the new possibilities that they felt they were standing on the cusp of. They were looking for the event that would catalyze God's new age. Well, what we see in our passage is an answer that very few of them expected, if any at all, that God would bring in this new era through the death and resurrection of a man, a man who now, though we can't see him right here, right now, reigns in heaven and will one day return to judge all people everywhere. In the first half of our passage, hopefully you've got your outlines there with you. I've kind of broken into two halves. In the first half of the passage, as Paul preaches in the synagogues of Thessalonica and Berea, we see that Jesus' resurrection confirms him as Israel's long-awaited king. He is the Messiah who newly completes the story of Israel. And then in the second half of the passage this morning, as Paul preaches to the Gentiles in Athens, we see that the resurrection of Jesus ushers in a new age, not just for the Israelites, but for everyone. He is the newly appointed judge who one day will come and complete the story of the world. All people are now accountable to him for how we have lived our lives. Uh, this is now The new age of accountability to Jesus as judge of all the earth that we live in. Uh, Both sections of this passage also carry implications for how we live today as well. Uh, Implications about how we should receive and test new spiritual ideas and implications about how we should live now as those accountable to Jesus. So it would be good to have your Bibles open um, as we jump into the passage, Acts um, chapter 17. Part 1, Paul in Thessalonica and berea uh, this is where we see that the messiah jesus is the messiah who completes the story of israel and this is where we see the critical importance of seeking truth by testing new ideas against the bible so paul here he's in the midst of his second missionary journey he's just come from philippi with his companions silas and timothy and now verse one he arrives in thessalonica which was a thriving cosmopolitan Port city, capital of the province, population about 100,000. And what we see as Paul arrives is some familiar patterns, if you've been reading through the book of Acts. Paul preaches first to the Jews in the synagogue. Some of his audience believe, some become jealous, so they form a mob and they pursue Paul. When they can't find him, they drag his host Jason before the city authorities on trumped-up charges of harbouring revolutionaries. Jason's released, he pays a bond, uh, and with their lives still threatened, Paul and his companions flee under the cover of darkness. 70 kilometres up the road, they begin in the the synagogue again, until some of the Jews from Thessalonica come down the road in in hot pursuit. Following Paul, they stir up a mob there as well, and then some local believers uh, Again at night, take Paul, whisk him off to safety uh, so he can head down to Athens. Um, That's what goes on in the first half of the passage in a nutshell. But there are two things in particular that, that I want us to dwell on in this passage, in this episode. Firstly, there's the gospel message that Paul taught that stirred up such jealousy and hatred from the Jews in Thessalonica. It's summarized for us uh, there in verse three. Now I wonder how this would compare with your 30-second you know, um, elevator summary uh, of the gospel. Um, verse three, Paul explained and proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah. So Paul's message, at the heart of it, it's a message all about Jesus. But specifically, it's the message that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king that God had promised, the one who would usher in this new golden age. But the reason it takes such explaining and proving, did you notice those words? That describes what Paul was doing there in the synagogue, at the start of verse 3. And the reason why some of the Jews reacted so angrily and with such violence against Paul is because Jesus didn't look like the Messiah that most people had expected. He'd been executed by the Romans in the most shameful way possible. And Israel was still well and truly under Roman rule. No one in Paul's day thought that that's how things were going to be when the Messiah came. And so Paul here has to take the scriptures. He has to take our Old Testament, their the jewish scriptures and carefully show that it was always god's plan for the messiah to die and rise again did you notice the words in the passage had to the messiah had to suffer and die because that was the only way that he could defeat humanity's greatest enemy of sin and you see that in the old testament in places like isaiah 53 and uh, 1 and 2 samuel and and just in in the whole sacrificial system um, as well, uh, through the first five books of the Bible. And the Messiah had to rise again, so he could take his rightful place on God's eternal throne. You see this uh, in the Psalms, uh, and the book of Daniel speaks of the eternal uh, Messiah. Um, it's the same case that Paul makes in a more extended form back there in Pisidian Antioch, back in Acts chapter 13. You might remember the speech there he gave at the synagogue, in the synagogue. Now, in so many ways, this was an utterly new message that the Jews in the synagogue there at Thessalonica received. Um, It was a message of God's new era, and it was arriving in a way that no one had foreseen. And so for them to believe it, they, they really had to do some digesting. And while many of the Jews at Thessalonica just weren't up to this, those at Berea were. And it's in the response of the Berean Jews to Paul's message here that we see the second thing that I want us to dwell on from the first half of the passage. And that's the critical importance of seeking truth by testing ideas against the Bible. It's clear from the passage that we're meant to understand the Berean Jews as a model for how all people should digest and understand the gospel message. You know, As you read through the book of Acts, Luke doesn't editorialise much. He doesn't sort of include his own, insert his own little narrator's comments very much. But when he does, as he does here in verse 11, we should sit up and take notice. Do you see what he says about the Berean Jews at the start of verse 11? He says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. The word there for noble is, is literally high-born, as in members of an upper-class family. But it had come to be used for those who were high-minded and deserved the title because of what they had done rather than what they had been born into. And the Bereans had earned this title because they did two things, verse 11 says... They received the message with great eagerness, first of all, and then secondly, they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In other words, they were open-minded, you know, that they welcomed the message, but they weren't so open-minded that their brains fell out. They knew that as good as Paul's message sounded, they had to test whether it really was from God. And the only way to do that is by holding it up next to the Bible. What a contrast this was from the jealousy and the emotional defiance of the Thessalonian Jews. Now, we live in a world today which is just flooded with information, thanks to the internet. The information age, they used to call it, although that phrase seems a bit kind of late 90s now, a bit dated. Um, If I'm curious about something, I can just keep clicking and reading and podcasting and YouTubing you know, I had to change a um, bike in a tube uh, a little while back. I had no idea how to do it, but now I'm an expert, thanks to YouTube. It had all the answers. Very, very helpful. But there are also lots of ideas and philosophies out there that touch on matters of faith and spiritual things, and um, some of these are really great. Some of the, the blogs and the podcasts that you can engage with are really great. That They'll give you a bigger, deeper picture of God. They'll help you in your um, daily walk with Jesus. But other, others of them, which might look helpful on the surface, are not quite as helpful as they seem. And the way you know the difference is by being Berean, examining the scriptures every day to see if it's true. And just because some idea you hear quotes the Bible, it doesn't mean it's true. You know, the best heretics are Bible quoters, twisting it and, and plucking it out of context. And so we need to cross-examine the ideas we hear, looking at things in their context and in the flow of the whole Bible storyline. Even as I or, or as Stephen or Steve or Eddie or whoever it is preaches here on Sundays, even as we preach, check what we say against The Bible. That's why we encourage you to have your Bibles open. And if you're not sure that we've got it right, then come and discuss it with us afterwards. Let's check it against the Bible together. We want to know um, if we've got it wrong. Uh, And this is also, this is a bit of a personal rant, by the way, but bear with me. I think this is also one reason why it's it's not a good practice to do your Bible reading on your phone, um, to make that the main way you read the Bible. When you look at the Bible on the small screen, you can more easily lose context uh, and the ability to properly understand it in the flow of the whole big Bible picture. In a paper Bible, you can flick through more easily. You can, see the, you can see the headings there. Even just by feeling the weight of it on your lap, you can see, oh, look, we're in the second part of the Bible, Acts. This is part the fulfilment of God's promises. That's the bit that we're up to uh, in the Bible. Rant over. <laughs> Use your paper Bibles, it's so much better. So the Bible, the point is, the Bible needs to be our ultimate rule and guide for knowing God and for living out our faith. It's the only thing that we can have 100% confidence in as being the flawless Word of God. Well, uh, when the Thessalonian Jews arrive in Berea, Paul's taken to the safety of Athens, uh, and so we come to this great ancient city. Um, And the focus of Luke's account here is Paul's engagement with the local philosophers. And the big thing we see here in part two of the passage is that Jesus is the capital J Judge, who will judge the whole world, who completes the story of the world in doing so. And we see that because he's the judge, all people live lives that are accountable to him. Now, the Athens that Paul arrives in, it's a city that is long past its prime. It's been 400 or 500 uh, or so years since the the days of the great philosophers, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Um, The city is well and truly past its political prime. It's now under Roman rule. But despite all that, Athens is still an influential centre of ideas. If you wanted to talk religion or philosophy in the first century, Athens was the place to be. And so Paul... Uh, he's as he's there in the city. He's waiting for the others to arrive, and he looks around. He goes for a bit of a walk, and he is greatly distressed by what he sees by the religiosity of the city. Verse sixteen says, uh, "Someone has said that in Athens at the time it was easier to find a god than a man. The city was it was swamped with idols. The idols of the Greek gods." Uh, towering above the city as a whole was the Parthenon, you know, the, uh, that spectacular building, the, the temple right up there on the hill, it's the one that you see um, in all the postcards of the goddess um, Athena. And Paul's distress as he walks around and sees all this idolatry echoes God's own response to idolatry in the Old Testament. There is only one being worthy of worship and for man-made be- man made Things to steal his glory, that's a travesty. You know, I wonder if we feel the distress that Paul feels. I wonder if we feel that today at the idolatry of our own city, swamped as it is by gods of of money and fame and career and family and more. Uh, And so um, while Paul's there in Athens, this time it's not... Uh, the uh, rejection of the Jews that forces him to go to the Gentiles, it's this distress that he feels. It's a bit of a break um, from the patterns in other places. Yes, he does preach in the synagogue, but, but it's not their rejection that forces him to go to the Gentiles. And so he begins to preach and debate in the marketplace with the pagans. And it's not long after he starts doing that, that he's invited to come and bring his ideas to the Areopagus which was uh, sort of like a mix between the city council and a theological court. They were the guardians of the city's moral and spiritual life. So verse 19, they invite Paul, may we know what this new idea is that you are presenting. You are bringing this, this new teaching, rather, is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our eyes and we would like to know what they mean. And so, in terms of theatres of debate, suddenly here Paul is elevated from the third division to the Premier, Premier League. And while the esteemed members of the Areopagus have probably just brought him in to you know, make a bit of sport of the afternoon, um, you know, see what this babbler has to say, um, what we see in his speech in verses 22 to 31 is that he can more than hold his own there at the Areopagus. Now, it's, it's a wonderful speech. We don't quite have the time today to look at it into details. uh, But there's so much good stuff packed in it. It would be worth just um, going home and and reading it through slowly and reflecting on each part of it. Um, There's good stuff packed in there. There's a lot to notice about Paul's evangelistic uh, technique in the way that he works with their presuppositions and so on. But what I want us to notice here this morning is what I think are the two big critical things from the speech. Firstly, that the big thing Paul wants his hearers to understand is that Jesus is now the judge of all. That's the new thing God's done in Jesus. And secondly, the big thing he wants his hearers to do in response is to repent. So he wants them to understand Jesus is judge, and in response he wants them to repent. Everything in the sermon drives towards these two things. Let's have a look a little bit at this sermon. He begins his speech by hooking them in, uh, he draws attention to Athens' religiosity, but he does it in a slightly ambiguous way. That word translated very religious. I see that in many ways you are very religious. It could be translated very pious. Right? That's a positive thing. Or it could be translated a little bit more negatively. Um, you are very superstitious. They're going to need to listen in, aren't they, to see which way Paul's going to go. And he also hooks them in by declaring that he's now going to show them the unknown God. Who the Athenians themselves had suspected was there by the altars that some of the altars that they had around the city. Uh, That's the introduction. Then, in the main body of the sermon, Paul shows them just how badly misguided they have been. We don't create God's habitat, Paul says. You know, temples with human hands. No, He creates ours, the world, and everything in it. We don't provide for his needs, bringing food to his altars and so on. No, he provides for our needs, giving life and breath and allotting the space for nations. And we don't design his image, idols of gold and silver and stone. No, he designed us. Now, what Paul says, he obviously cuts deeply into popular Greek paganism with its man-made idols and its temple service. But it also undermined the religion, the the more intelligent religion of the Greek philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics in particular. Back in verse 18, Paul refers to those two groups. They were the ones who debated with him in the marketplace. Um, These were the two main schools of thought represented in the Areopagus. Now, who were they exactly, the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying things, the Epicureans, they were a group who believed that... um, They believed in seeking simplicity and tranquility in life. That was the good life. Their name means the philosophy of the garden, and I think that gives it to you in a little bit of a nutshell. Think uh, the pleasant life, growing your peas, smelling the roses all in close enjoyment of family and friends. That's what the Epicureans were on about. Stoics, on the other hand, they pursued a life of duty, free from passion and emotion, marked by endurance through pain. We we often use the word stoic um, in that kind of way today, don't we? Well, their name means the philosophy of the porch. The porch being the area sort of around the outside of the Athenian marketplace, Which is a picture of how highly engaged they were in public life. They wanted to influence the ways of the city. Both groups were slightly cynical of popular Greek idol worship. And so, as Paul was there preaching the Areopagus that day, many of them would have cheered at bits of what Paul was saying. But some of what Paul said would have cut them as well. For instance, the Epicureans, they wouldn't have liked the idea of a creator god. They thought the world had always existed. They also wouldn't have liked the idea that God sought a relationship with people. In their idea, uh, in their way of seeing things, that God's existed blissfully, separately, away from humankind, in a a totally um, cut-off, a separate sphere. Now, the Stoics, for their part, they wouldn't have liked the idea that God was personal or distinct from creation, They thought of him more as a a life force that permeated uh, through everything. And so as Paul's preaching here, he's trying to vividly present how far off the mark they had had been on questions to do with God's nature and his character. They'd been utterly ignorant. And that's... The reason Paul's trying to do that is because of the conclusion that he's trying to drive things towards. Remember those two things I mentioned before, that Jesus is judge of all and so all people must repent. And have a look, let's have a look at Paul's conclusion where he does that in verses 30 and 31 and see how it all um, comes together. Paul says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And do you see the logic here? Uh, in the past, you know, with your idols and your religious philosophies, you ignorantly rejected the true God, but he overlooked it. But now, because there is now a judge of all, Jesus, you need to Repent. Turn away from that ignorant rejection. Turn away from it and trust God, putting him in his rightful place as creator and sustainer. Now, you might ask, why is it that Jesus' resurrection proves he will judge the world? That's kind of this climactic point of Paul's speech there. Well, it comes from the idea that it was the role of the Messiah to judge the world combined with the idea that Jesus' resurrection proves him to be the Messiah. Both of those ideas are found in the Old Testament. Both of them are found in Paul's preaching elsewhere throughout the book of Acts. Now, Paul probably would have fleshed it out a little bit more for the Athenians on the day. Uh, The speech only goes for a minute 40, if you time it. He probably spoke for longer than that. And as Luke summarised the speech as he was writing out the book of Acts... um, He probably assumed that he could leave out that assumption because it's included in other parts um, of the book of Acts. And so Jesus' resurrection, the point is Jesus' resurrection proves that he is judge because it proves he's the Messiah and the role of the Messiah was to judge. Well, anyway, back in Athens, back there at the Areopagus, how did people respond? Well, Luke tells us the response was mixed. Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believed in any kind of afterlife let alone the idea that you're accountable to anyone for how you had lived. And certainly no Greek of any kind believed in a bodily resurrection, the kind of which Paul was preaching here. And so, verse 32, some of them sneered. Others of them wanted to hear Paul again. But given that Paul left pretty soon afterwards for Corinth, you get the impression that they weren't really that genuine in their request. But then there were those who did believe. Verse 34 tells us, they recognise their accountability before Jesus the judge and so they turn from their false religion to put their trust in the living God. And somewhat ironically, it's only when you do that, that on the day of judgment, you will stand before Jesus the judge, not as judge, but as saviour. For it's only when you recognise the judgement that your sin deserves and respond with repentance and faith that you can know the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has brought and be saved from his judgement. Well, that's the new reality that all people now live under. Jesus as judge completes the story of the world. God has set a day when he would judge the world with justice through the man he has appointed. And so the question is, do you live now in accordance with that reality? Have you repented, turned from your ignorance of God to put your hope in Jesus and thereby known the sweetness of forgiveness of sins in him and the sure hope of eternity with him? Now repentance, of course, is both a once-for-all action and a moment-by-moment way of living there's the definitive turning to christ the first fruit of spirit worked faith where we leave our old sins behind and declare our allegiance to him that's the point of conversion but then there's the ongoing day by day outworking of that where with god's help we put our sin to death by bringing it to him by confessing it to him and joyfully receiving a fresh christ's forgiveness what we do with our sin when we recognise recognise it, um, I think in many ways can be more a marker of our spiritual health than whether we've sinned in the first place because we're all going to sin in this age. Because what it does is it shows us where our allegiance lies. It shows us who we are living for. And so is your life such a repentant life? Well, I want to finish by reminding us that as God ushers in this new age through Jesus, the gospel really is good news for all. The theme of our um, sermon series, this term, has been the international gospel. Um, The gospel no longer bound just to this one nation, but going out to all nations. The gospel really is for all. But in our passage today, we've seen that the gospel that Paul preaches in the synagogue of Thessalonica and Berea It's actually the same gospel that he preaches there in Athens, though he used different categories of language for his different audiences. There is one gospel behind it all, that Jesus is Messiah and judge. And see, it's only because Jesus is the Messiah who completes the story of Israel that he can be the judge who completes the story of the world. Right from the very beginning, it was always God's plan that through Israel, all the nations of the world... Would come to him and recognize him as the true and living God and reach out to him in faith. In the resurrection of Jesus, God really has done something wonderfully new that changes everything for everyone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this wonderful new thing that you have done in the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you that through the resurrection, He is the Messiah who completes the story of Israel. And more than that, he is the judge who is completing and will complete the story of the world. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to recognise those great truths uh, in the way that we live. And so turn to him in repentance and faith. Turn away from um, our idolatry and our sin. And know the joy and the sweetness of forgiveness of sins that comes when we put our trust in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.